Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. Hello, my name's Shireen Kerr and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm James Boston and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Bafo Ababio and you're listening to Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Jermaine Amaraji, and you listen to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Akwa, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm John Amir, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Chelsea Coombson, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, my name is Laura Marvin, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Marvis Stewart, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. I'm your host, Kolsima Ali. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. You can find Bereavement Room across all major podcast channels, Spotify, Deezer, Google, Apple, wherever it is that you like to listen, you can find us, we're there. We're also on social media. The handle is at Bereavement Room over on Instagram or Twitter. DM me, I love hearing from you. Before I announce today's guest and get into the detail of today's episode, I want to reflect something with you. I haven't thought about my 20s in a long time because I haven't been in my 20s for a long time. Um, For those of you that know the backstory, that listen to Bereavement Room regularly, you know that my mum died when I was 26. And something I've been thinking about recently is how hard it is to be bereaved as a 20-something year old because when you're in your 20s your 20s are very much about living your best life if I could coin that term or having a lit time or however you want to describe it Um, I guess for me the best way to describe it is living a carefree state of mind because your 20s is the prime of your life it's about reaching your career goals relationships traveling experiencing life as much as it will offer you know your parents are there so you are in a carefree state of mind but it is inconceivable when a loved one a parent is diagnosed with an incurable disease um, or perhaps die suddenly or unexpectedly. It's it's inconceivable that something like that would happen to you in your twenties. That it you know it's your worst nightmare really. Um, and having to navigate something like that in your twenties will change your outlook and your perspective. And essentially, losing a parent in your twenties will change the course of your life. It will change the dynamics within your family. You might have to take on more responsibilities it may change and shift the conversations within your social groups. And that's not a nice thing to go through in your 20s when, you know, you should be just living life, really, because that's what your 20s are about. And so I just want to reflect that when we get into today's episode, please listen with the intention of listening, um, not with opinion or judgment. It's a really difficult thing to be bereaved, anyway but then I think if you come from a community an ethnic minority community in particular 
um, depending on your belief systems and your family dynamics, that can add an extra layer within your grief and how you navigate conversations and your self-care and what, you know, what life is going to look like going forward if you can even have time to think about that while you're in so much pain because let's face it grief is painful I think also something that I want to reflect on that I hadn't thought about in a while um your friendship circles do also change conversations do change and those conversations can be tricky to navigate so you know if you are the friend of a grieving person please be mindful that you're not going to upset someone by asking your friend what that person's loved one was like, what was their mum and dad like, what memories do they have, you know, you're not going to be upsetting them to take them out for coffee and to just spend time listening to your friend, you know, the biggest gift you can give to a grieving person is your ear and that might sound simple but it's actually very powerful. So that's enough from me. It is National Grief Awareness Week. So I hope that today's episode raises more awareness about how you can support people that are grieving. Today's guest is Shirin Shah. She is a lawyer. She's also the co-founder of South Asian Sisters Speak, also known as SAS. In her spare time, she loves dancing, bouldering and traveling. She reached out to me earlier this year. She said, my dad died. Uh, He had a rare neurological disease. It wasn't curable. And she, you know, briefly explained what it was like when he was in hospital. And she said, I I would love to come on your podcast and talk about my dad. Um, And I really felt for her, I really do. It's been an incredibly difficult year for Shirin because she's also lost additional family members and of course we're in a global pandemic so she's grieving in a lockdown which is an entirely another thing that you have to navigate which I can relate to because my dad also died earlier this year and grieving in a lockdown I don't really have a lot of words to describe it Um, but Shirin's going to reflect on what that has been like for her. If you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you're a regular listener, thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Kolsima Ali. Hi everyone, I'm thrilled to say today's guest is Shirin Shah. Hey Shirin, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been good, thanks. Um, Just another week in lockdown working from home, um, which is getting a little bit monotonous and particularly with like autumn and winter and the bad weather and kind of gloomy London, but it's okay. Yeah, it's a, for everyone that's listening, it is a rainy Saturday afternoon with Sharon and I um, in London and yeah, it is the start of autumn and soon to be winter. Um, It's been a busy week for me as well. For everyone that's listening, many of you know that I have launched a fundraiser for season three. So that's what I've been up to this week. Massive thank you to everyone that's contributed so far. Um, It has been a busy, busy week, but I just want you to know that uh, I am very, very grateful for all the contributions. So fingers crossed we hit the target and there will be a season three next year. 
So, Shirin, you have joined me to talk about your father, who died early this year. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a rare disease. And before we kind of get into the context of what this year has been like for you, grief, um, how you've been processing, what your environment has been like, you introduce yourself to my listeners because uh, they love to know where people are from, what they do, what city they're from, before we get into the context of what this year has been like for you. Sure. Um, so yeah, my name's Sharon. Um, I am born and raised in London. Um, and I'm from like my family is originally from Gujarat, but my parents were both born in East Africa, so Kenya and Tanzania. Um, and yeah, in in my day job, I'm a, a qualified solicitor, and I and I work at the moment in like the corporate sector. Um, and I spend a lot of my spare time really passionate about raising the voices of diverse women and particularly South Asian women so um, I'm also the co-founder of South Asian Sisters Speaks or SAFs um, as we like to call it um, on the side which is my little side hustle um, creating kind of events and spaces for South Asian women to talk about our experiences um, so yeah. It's amazing and um, talk to me a little bit about SAS like you guys put on events right for South Asian women to be in safe spaces to talk about popular culture mental health yeah exactly so um we run a few different events so we've done panel events and things such as mental health as you said lost south asian history so the things that we don't get to learn in the uk curriculum um identity and just generally everything that comes i think with being um from a background where you have two very very different influences pushing on you and i think that can be really difficult to navigate so creating the safe space to discuss that and obviously the added challenges of being a woman um, and we also run a book club which is called the Brown Girls Book Club um, where we read books specifically by South Asian women um, and use them to discuss some of those topics so yeah it's a uh, it's a real passion project and love of mine um, I feel like I'm often um I have my emails up when I'm at work and I'm always like subtly doing that stuff in the background when I can um, and yeah, it's um, you can find us at we are underscore sass on um, Instagram and Twitter. So yeah, if, if it's of interest, then please do give us a follow. So this kind of now brings me on to talk about your father. Now, what was your father like? You know, um, what was your relationship like with your dad? Yeah, um, my dad was awesome. Like, and I know it's one of those things. I think you know when somebody passes away, and like you talk to anyone, they always just talk really glowingly about them. And um, especially I find now when I'm talking to people who didn't know my dad, I just feel like one of the other many people who's like, oh, he was amazing. But like I'm like objectively, he actually was amazing. Like it's not just me being his daughter saying that. Um, mm. But yeah, we had a. They had a really good relationship. I think what I really um so actually when I was when I was younger, my dad um was often traveling for work. So kind of every two weeks he tended to be abroad. So I feel like in some ways actually when I was younger, we used to um see him all the time on the weekends and and do things as a family. But I think I really, really got to know him probably from when I was like 16 until like 25 when which is how old I was when he passed away um and over the last few years especially the last seven years we used to go on um 
family holidays every year and me my brother and my dad were like a little adventuring trio so we used to always go on like hikes together or um you know want to try different food and I think he he was just a really caring person who also was very calm um he had this way of like if I was ever stressed out about anything I think he could probably say one or two words and it would just like calm me down um specifically I remember when I was at university in my final year I was really stressed about um choosing what like assessment methods I should do or something and I called my dad and I just like spoke him through all the different options um which was something that he didn't really understand he, he didn't go to university um and he just said look you've you've clearly thought about it and you've come up with a reason thing like don't worry about it and I think it was it's stuff like that um and I think with I mean with my dad and a lot of other kind of um Indian men I know from that generation I never probably actually like said I love you or we never you know said that to each other but he showed it very much in um the way he was and what he did um like in another example is when I was at university um I had just started driving on the motorway and I wasn't super comfortable um my dad would sit in the passenger seat in the car for two hours whilst I drove to Leamington Spa to then take a train home on the same day for another two hours just so that I didn't have to drive on my own mm. your dad's very supportive he was a very supportive dad yeah extremely and then um I think in terms of like as a person he was just you know came to this country on his own when he was 16 um did very very well for himself as an accountant and um, very successful got to kind of travel the world with his work and very fun loving as well like always always up for a laugh having a drink or going to play golf like absolutely obsessed with golf obsessed with cricket um and yeah he was just I think also the other nice thing about our relationship is um you kind of I think especially as time went on if it almost felt like we were on a friend's level like I used to me and my brother used to call my dad Diren which is like his name um rather than like dad we'd just be like oh Diren like what are you doing and like have a laugh and things so yeah um he was pretty cool (laughs) lovely lovely memories you've got as well of your father too and I I kind of hear that from the age of 16 to 25 uh, relationships with parents do evolve over time Um, you can become a lot closer as you get older I guess and I guess it depends on the the circumstances of where your parents are where they're working if they're away from home a lot and I can definitely resonate with an evolving relationship with a with a parent so I mean this is your reflection moment kind of events run up to the day that your dad died what this looked like for you and your family mm-hmm. uh in a way that works for you obviously look after yourself but yeah it's your moment to kind of reflect on what that looked like for you yeah sure um so it's quite weird like we're sitting here it's it's almost like a year to the date when everything kind of started now um so I would say the main point was um early November last year we went out for my mum's birthday um, and so we decided to go to the theatre and then um, get some dinner so 
something we used to do quite often like especially if there was um theatre shows which were like South Asian focused we would always go to them um so yeah we we went for this dinner and my dad was just really quiet which um isn't like him at all like you know if we ever went out we'd always kind of be having a laugh or like talking about stuff and he um also like quite opinionated and used to used to love discussing things so yeah he just was really really quiet and he wasn't saying anything at the table and I kept on looking at him and I kept on asking him like are you okay like what's you know what's going on um and he was like yeah no I'm fine I'm just I'm just listening I'm just listening um and so I did feel it that day I was like there's, there's something not quite right but you think okay he's he's been working maybe he's just stressed or maybe he's tired or um or whatever so that was that and then um the next weekend um I actually had a SAS event um and my mum had come down to the SAS event and then um so I was out of the house all of Saturday and then then we went home and my dad had been at a meeting and um mm-hmm when we got home somebody had so my dad was the treasurer of our of our like local community which I'm part of um and I think he's going to do a presentation for for them about the finances of of the charity and somebody called my uncle my mum's brother um he then called my mum to say um oh like is everything okay with um like dad he he seems to be having some difficulty getting his words out and like you know pausing or like between the words in his sentence or like not finishing sentences that kind of thing um and so he came back and we spent my brother my brother also came we kind of told him and so he we all came home and when my dad was home we we're just trying to like ask him like are you okay like we've noticed and some other people have noticed that like you're having some difficulty with your words and like with your speech and also maybe a little bit with comprehending things like if you asked him something it seemed like it was taking him a little bit longer to understand what you were asking um and also then to articulate what he wanted or to find the right words um and he was like oh I think I'm just I think I'm just stressed and I think I have never in the entirety of my life ever heard my dad say he's stressed. Like it was just not a thing that he would ever say or ever express. So it was quite weird to think that he felt that stressed. Um, and that that's what he kept on saying. Um, eventually, we decided to take him to A&E that day. Um, we kind of thought, I mean, the only things that we tended to think about when it came to speech issues was like he might have had a stroke or something like that um, yeah. so we thought okay let's take him to A&E and just just double check um like to preface this my dad was um extremely healthy for like I said he he did Everest Base Camp at 65 um mm-hmm. like climbed Kilimanjaro at 60 like he wasn't anyone with like underlying health issues but that was the only thing that we could think of so take him to A&E and it kind of tested all of that like his heart and his did a ct scan and all of that and um they were like there isn't anything showing up but they agreed that there was something happening with his speech and that also his coordination was off so Mm -hmm. they suggested we get an mri scan um and the mri scan took about 10 days i think between that a e visit and the mri scan to actually happen um and in between 
he basically just continued to deteriorate. So, like, he started really struggling to walk. And, like, if he was walking around the house, he would be, like, holding onto the walls or, like, holding onto um, the banister, like, really tightly, just, like, really unstable. Um, his speech was getting worse and worse. Um, you would ask him what he was eating and he would say something completely different. So you'd, I think he was, one day he, we were eating, like, bean sprout curry which is like more like mug if anyone knows what that is and we're like oh what are you eating and he would say peas or um if there was rice he was like what color you'd ask him what color it was and he would say green um and then he started like repetitively doing things so um he couldn't or like forgetting things so like for example he needed to do his timesheet and he couldn't remember the password for um his account and he spent but he kept on like putting in the same password 20 times and it was continually wrong. So there's all these different symptoms basically um, that started like showing and like exacerbating during that period. Um, so my mom took him for this MRI um, and I think it was less than 24 hours later, they basically called my mom and said, you need to bring him in immediately for like extra tests. And so, yeah, that day I like left work. We all kind of met up at the, my brother was actually meant to be going on a stag do and was on the way to um, the airport and turned around. Um, And we all went to the hospital. um, And yeah, so eventually my dad was admitted to the National Hospital for Neurology and Neuroscience. um, And they just did a lot of tests. Um, so you had a lot of different neurologists um, doing various tests so they have these standardized tests you know where you ask somebody to fill out a clock or like all these all these various things or name animals and they did those few tests over a period of time and um, that I think the scary thing was you realized how bad it was at that time like I think at one point they asked my dad to count back from 20 to one and it took him like five minutes to do that like he just kept on forgetting the numbers um and he just continued to deteriorate in all of the different like symptoms and ways that I've been saying um and about probably maybe about a week into after he'd been in hospital um and actually I, there was a period where he was at UCLH for two days before getting a bed at the national and I was just googling as you would like what could it be like after they after we knew it wasn't a stroke or cancer or something like that um Mm. I was like maybe he has Alzheimer's but like Alzheimer's doesn't come on that quickly and you start to think and then I remember googling and the only thing that I could come across with the same symptoms that was so so rapid was Creutzfeldt's Jacobs disease um and eventually after doing all these different blood tests all these different tests um they said to us I think maybe about a week into it so like early December um or late November I can't remember now they basically were like um we think he has sporadic Creutzfeldt Jacobs disease um and yeah it's it's terminal and it's an extremely rapid degenerative neurological condition that essentially a a protein misfolds in your brain and it causes brain damage like cell by cell and it just like quickens um over time so that's why within a matter of weeks 
he basically lost like every faculty um that he'd ever had and yeah it was I think an extremely scary thing to have somebody who probably two weeks before that seemed perfectly fine perfectly healthy Mm. highly functioning like doing accounts and he was working right up until he was admitted to hospital um that you know within within that period he basically like lost everything um and so yeah within I think so you kind of googled it right so you worked out it was Jacob before they even said it I think in my head I was like this is the only thing that matches but also like you don't want to believe it right because it is a terminal illness that there's absolutely no treatment for so I think as much as when they said it I was like okay I think that's what I thought it was I I didn't want it to be that right because that's essentially a death sentence like there's nothing else that they can do Mm. um and you want to probably hold out hope that it's something else less serious um but it yeah I think even though I knew I think when they actually told us that's when it really sets in and you're like okay he's he's going to die like there is no other like there's nothing else that can happen now um but yeah so I would say so like between that first sign in early November and early December he just basically lost the ability to do everything so my dad's birthday is on the 9th of December and um by that point he was in a wheelchair because he he couldn't walk anymore um yeah and we we couldn't really do much um but we just took him out and like bought loads of jelly bee and like dog and like whatever food we could got a chocolate cake tiramisu like everything and basically just like fed him for his birthday um and yeah I, I think actually by his birthday he wasn't able to talk anymore um he could say maybe hmm so he'd be able to like make a bit of a noise to say yes or no but essentially you know from the in- initial issues of his speech he eventually started just only saying yes or no and then eventually couldn't talk anymore um was he sent home by then was he discharged or he was kept in hospital so we I mean our our house wasn't suitable for um the kind of you know like level of assistance for example that he would need um because he would have needed like 24 7 care Mm -hmm. um so and and the other thing was actually I mean, Kreutzfeldt-Jacobson's is, like, very, very rapid, but it can vary between, like, weeks and months. And from what they were saying, they said that this is one of the, like, fastest cases they had ever seen. So although we were talking about... So we we had a discussion, I think, about putting him in a hospice. So we were on the waiting list for a hospice. Um, And we actually eventually did get a a space in in a hospice, but at that point, they basically said he had a few days to live. So we just didn't see the point in moving. And the hospital were amazing and basically were like, you know, we're happy to um, care for him here. Um, and the ner- I can't, like, the nursing staff were incredible. Like, they almost, like, became like a family to us. Um, so, no, we he actually um, stayed in the hospital. Um, and what happened was... 
within that within I would say like that month of being in hospital he basically ended up in a semi-comatic state where he couldn't eat couldn't comprehend couldn't like react to you or walk or like anything essentially completely bed bound um and I think around Christmas they were like okay we think he's he's um a lot of people get chest infections and then they pass away with a specific condition um and they were like yeah we think it's a few days and then and then that didn't happen my dad survived and then they're like, okay a few weeks and what actually ended up happening is my dad survived about eight weeks in that state where he didn't eat and then he eventually passed away I think when all of his reserves were gone um and I think that's just partly to do with how healthy his body was otherwise that um he didn't get any other infections but he lived in that state um of almost like in a coma um for yeah two months um and eventually passed away in like early February um but I'm trying to think there was so this this disease like there were so many symptoms like one of the other symptoms was um like hallucinations so there was a period where he was getting really 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 vivid hallucinations and like kicking and like um thinking that he was getting attacked for example um and you'd have to try and like calm him down um another one was like muscle jerking so it's just like your brain you can't kind of control and your muscles just like do their own thing and um yeah it's did they medicate him then were the hallucinations due to medicine or is that just a natural symptom of that disease yeah so that's a natural symptom and eventually they did put him on um what is it called I can't remember the name of the drug now but it's basically one which was like a relaxant so it would help relax the muscles and would also help with um like reducing things I guess I think it was also slightly like sedative so they ended up putting in like a syringe driver um and it had that that specific medicine in it and it was like a small amount that basically would help um him relax and I think that was the other crazy thing was you we basically like within a couple of weeks right as I said from like the first sign of my dad having something wrong um we were suddenly discussing like palliative care and like you know what medicine should we give him how much should we give him like should you know can can we take him and can we not take him should we you know move him to a hospice or what is the most dignified way for somebody to die and like um I think I actually often was um like talking to the doctors quite a lot about um you know what to do or what not to do and and like another thing that um because he did survive a lot longer than they um expected and he wasn't eating we eventually um asked like you know can you just put him on like a mild drip just so that he doesn't get dehydrated which is what one of the palliative doctors suggested um so yeah there was a lot of um you actually realize in that situation that there is no definite when especially when it comes to things like palliative care like you know these doctors had so much we had the um most experienced doctor in this condition he's he's actually himself in I think his 80s um and I've seen about 700 cases of this and travels around the country to see them um 
and you know he he at one point was like oh we think it stays and and you realize even with things like this um there is an element of discretion when it comes to especially end of life care like doctors will suggest certain things but um they did really like work with you and talk to you about what you felt would be best um in that situation so yeah I'm trying to think you know when you were like it was such a long it was three months of my life like going to and from a hospital every single day probably spending about eight to twelve hours a day in a hospital were you Uh, working at the time so I um was very very lucky with my work that they basically let me take three months off Mm. um to be with my dad and um they also paid me during that entire time as well um so I was very lucky that they did that I think because it was such extraordinary circumstances but um I can't I can't even imagine having to have had to go to work and think about that at the time because even though towards the end there was absolutely nothing that I could do for my dad even just being able to be there and sit there and just like be in the room or like play music um in the background in case he could hear um you kind of felt like you were doing something right um Mm. did you talk to him yeah we did um maintained like talking to him throughout it's one of those really difficult things though because you didn't know because he wasn't able to react you didn't and they didn't they don't know perfectly how much somebody can and can't comprehend because of that um it was tricky like you didn't know if he was um able to hear you if he if he could comprehend what you were saying to him um and particularly with um my clonus, which was the kind of muscle jerking that I was referencing um a lot of that is often to stimuli. So sometimes if you approached him, and also, also with the hallucinations, if you approached him, he'd like freak out um, because he probably couldn't, maybe couldn't recognise us anymore as well. So it wasn't, his body was like reacting and you, sometimes you did feel like, oh, am I, am I irritating him more by like mm. trying to talk to him or like trying to like touch him or or whatever. Um, but I did and and... It was difficult. I think you even run out of things to say, right? You're like, what do I say or what do I not say? I think we used to just try and like talk to him about um like memories and things like that. So um what was going on in your head? Like, you know, how were you coping? How were you functioning every day? Mm, I think you kind of realize in circumstances like that. I I never thought I would be able to like handle what was happening you know or anything happening to like my parents but um you kind of just had to get on with it and I think particularly at the beginning where he was deteriorating um so quickly like every day was just trying to like adapt and adjust to what he was and wasn't capable of doing like one day he could eat solids and then the next day or two days later he couldn't eat solids and like you um I think we were really, really consumed with like caring for him as much as possible um, during that period that 
or like helping him go to the bathroom or like helping him have a shower like all of those different things were just keeping us like busy and on our feet and just like constantly adjusting um but I remember feeling um particularly towards the end and and a lot that every day I used to wake up absolutely exhausted like it didn't matter if I'd slept for like 10 hours I just was constantly exhausted for that um those few months and I remember at the time even though it had only been like two months or two and a half months I think it felt like I'd been doing that for six months like it was just this kind of like grueling period that at the same time so much happened in such a short pace of time short space of time but equally it felt so draining like it had been half a year almost Mm. Um, and so the only actually like one thing I did for myself during that time was um there was a dance class um once a week I think it was on a Monday evening um and I calculated that it was exactly a 14 minute walk from the hospital and exactly like a 10 minute walk from my flat so I basically was like look if anything happens and if for example the doctors say okay he's gonna die today I knew that I could run back if I wanted to um and so the only thing I started to do was go to this one dance class every Monday um and it was really good like I I could just focus on like well the challenge in front of me for that one hour and not think about everything else that was going on Um, absolutely yeah and you it is self-care um and and you do need you know you will run out of reserves yourself if you don't do something for yourself in what is a harrowing time in your life I think that's something which I found really um in comparison that my mum like was just there from like 8am till like as like 2am every day and just her thing was just to constantly be there and um I think in that time she's probably not generally very good at taking care of herself when she's stressed but like wasn't eating properly like wasn't really that we all weren't really eating proper meals we would my I have to give a big like kind of shout out to my extended family so like my mum's siblings um and like my aunts and uncles and all my cousins used to be there like all the time like at the beginning they all used to bring food for everyone and then my cousins like at least one or two of them would come every day after work um so we were really surrounded by like a lot of support and particularly they were the ones feeding us during that time because like none of us were like going out really to go and buy food and stuff so they would always cook stuff and bring it for us um but it was one of those things that I think my mum's way of showing she cared um was just to be there 24 7 um and I can see that with a lot of like other women of that generation like in my family um and she also didn't necessarily understand that it was important for me to take those breaks and also like I used to have a few friends who might come near the hospital and I'd like go for a coffee with them um to just chat um but that was something that I don't quite think she understood and I think she personally just felt very guilty if she wasn't there for every single second of every day as much as she could be 
And when when you say she didn't quite understand the coffee breaks that you took, what what do you mean? What does that look like? Um, I mean, I think at times there was like attacking of, you know, like saying that I was maybe like didn't care or um, things like that. Like, how could I? I said more like, how could I even like think about talking to my friends or going to do a dance class or something like that when all of this other stuff was going on mm-hmm. um bit of gaslighting probably the best way to put it um mm-hmm. so yeah that's hard um I think a lot of the listeners might resonate with that I kind of do uh I think that's particularly I don't know if it's a South Asian thing um I'm from Bangladeshi background so uh that can happen with families where you know you have to be by the bedside 24 7 uh you you can't go for a break or yeah but, but I guess I don't know I've always interpreted it as our generation that if you aren't look after yourself how can you look after somebody else or, or be there for someone else but then there is a generational difference I think that generation they are very much of the well, I don't want to say that they're the caring generation and we're not, but um, I think they they make a lot of sacrifices, I guess. Mm. Say they're very selfless. Not that I'm saying we aren't, but I think particularly now that we know what poor mental health is and mental illnesses, yeah. and we talk about that so much now that it, it is very important in situations like this when it's very stressful. You know, something's happened very rapidly unexpectedly that you do have to look after yourself so so when you say about um you use the word gaslighting there or attacking how how does that make you feel you know what how did you cope with that um it was tough and and to be honest like it's something I do, I do think it's quite prevalent in, in South Asian culture anyway. It's it's not like that was the first time I was gaslit by my mum. I think that's quite a common okay. with like parenting that I've yeah. received. Um, and, you know, it's, some of those comments have actually come up since. And, and I, I, it's hard. Like, it's really, really hard, I think, for somebody else to suggest that you don't care or that you're not affected by essentially the worst thing that has ever happened in my life um and I mean you know for me I I agree with you completely that you in order to be I mean I put strong in quotation marks but in order to kind of like deal with what's happening I do think you do need to take care of yourself and and to give yourself some space to just um because because also like you know, I spent all those days with my mum and my brother, but we were all going through the same thing and also all processing it in completely different ways. So for me, being able to just, like, talk to somebody who was a bit more removed from the situation, like my friends, helped me process what was happening so I could say what I needed to to kind of get my head around the fact that my dad was terminally ill and was going to die imminently. Um, So... Yeah, I think it was um, definitely difficult when you're all grieving the same loss, but you're like doing it in such different ways and and one person doesn't understand the way you're doing it and you don't understand the way that that person is doing it. Um, 
And yeah. no, knowing that, how does that make you feel now? Knowing that people do process things in different ways, even though you're going through the same thing. Um, I think it's um, it's an important thing to know in general. I think to like obviously appreciate that people deal with different situations in different ways, and and I think I try now or hope that I may be more empathetic to other people in general whether it's like not necessarily in the context of grief per se but like just with my friends and understanding that we all react to different things in in different ways and and also have different like tolerance levels or resilience levels depending on like what we've experienced in life um mm-hmm. but I I still think that miscommunication if that's the right way to put it is still there and it can be really really difficult when your ways of grieving or your ways of processing things are so different to actually be able to not judge the other person for what they're doing and also hold space for that person in the same way um I think that's really tough Mm. yeah yeah I hear you I think that miscommunication is probably the right word and it, it can happen in in situations that are very heightened where emotions are arising and something's going to happen imminently that will impact the rest of your life. Um, Which kind of brings me to ask you what, you know, what were the last few days like the day that your dad died, if if you're comfortable with sharing? As I said, like he um, kind of continued to deteriorate, although he was in that quite like stable comatic um phase for a while and then I remember the last week so previously he although he couldn't like do anything he still used to have his eyes open and his eyes would be moving around I don't know if he was like subconsciously thinking about something else or or what but um I remember in the last week he his the last few days especially like his eyes were just closed had also because he'd not eaten for two months like he'd lost all of his weight he suddenly started looking like a very very old man um his skin darkened and I think we the last maybe like day before two days before noticed that like his urine was um really really dark and and I think the palliative doctor came and said you know like it kind of looks like his organs are starting to fail so you know I think it might be um a couple of days now and um we'd always said that we hadn't we hadn't stayed the nights yet we'd stayed till like 1 or 2 a.m but um we always said you know like when it gets closer apparently to when it's meant to happen like we'll start staying the nights and so this palliative doctor said like okay it could be in the next few days right and um I'm like, well, we all can't stay today because we don't know what's going to happen today. Um, and we need to, like, reserve some energy. Um, so in the end, my this is the first night that we decided to stay. My brother um, stayed overnight. Um, and I think me and my mum left at about midnight. And um, I think I'd maybe just gone to sleep. And then my brother called me at, like, 1.15 and was like, he's passed away. Oh, um, gosh. Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, we, we got the feeling that it was imminent. Um, and I actually remember the last week being quite difficult, more so because 
because of how long he had survived without like anything um he ended up having I think so many more like you never think about these complications but like one thing for example was um if you've obviously not eaten or drunk anything for months and months and months like your mouth dries out and so I remember for the last like few days before my dad passed away like cleaning blood out of his tongue and out of his mouth and I remember just thinking like this has got too much now like this has got to a point like this is a horrible horrible like situation to have to see him in right or for him to have to live in when I reflect on everything that happened though I also I think having seen him not only deteriorate but also that extended period and all of the things that happened actually really gave me and my brother I think time to process that essentially death was the best option for him he was never going to recover Mm. Um, and like he was a very proud dignified independent person and I don't think he would have ever 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 wanted us to see him in that way or to live in a way where basically everybody had to do something for you right because you weren't capable of taking care of yourself yeah I was able to process basically that death was the best option for him because of seeing all of that um and caring for him during that time um but yeah so so my brother called me um and me and my mum got in an uber and I went to the hospital straight away um and so my brother was there and I think he said my dad had been like breathing um I think a little bit more loudly during that like last two days um and Bradley turned off the light and then um he might have like dozed off for a little bit and then I think he woke up and he thinks he basically like caught the last two breaths of my of my like dad and he I think he doesn't he doesn't quite remember it now but I think he said that he just like said something to him mm-hmm. um but yeah I'm, I'm really I think we're all very I can't imagine what it was like obviously for him to to be there and to have to like um kind of witness that but um I'm glad that I think we're all very glad one of us was there um and yeah so we so we went um straight away me and my mum and you know he was still warm and we were just there for like another hour or so just like with his with his body and like kind of as he started to cool and things like that um did you did you get to sit with your dad at that point um for a while did they have a chapel of rest or like I imagine I know with South Asian families as soon as the news comes out that someone has died it gets really busy in the hospital or Mm. in the in the chapel of rest what what did that kind of look like for you in, in the days um, so because it happened at like one fifteen in the morning, um, it was just me, my mom and my brother and um, we stayed with him for a bit. And then I think the, they wanted to obviously clean the body and, and take it to the morgue. Okay. Um, so we stayed for a while um, until he started to kind of cool down and then um, went home. Um, and then, yeah, the next morning was we got up and... Um, all the admin stuff so like obviously going to get the death certificate and register yeah. death, all of that and I remember obviously we we didn't tell anybody any of our other family until um the next morning I think around like 11 or something I think we basically went home came back to the flat sorry and we're just talking till like 4 5 a.m I think I don't even know what we were talking about I think there was just like an element of like surrealism like 
he's actually gone. Like, even though we had seen all of this stuff happen, and as I said, it had at times felt like the longest, longest time of my life. At the same time, it was like a flash of light, like all of this stuff had happened and all of a sudden my dad was dead. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think we all just sat up for a while just being like, this is absolutely surreal. Um, Um, When you say you were talking, was that you, your mum and your brother? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Okay. So you had some quality time just together before everyone else arrived? I think the rest of my family, and it happened on a Friday, so... Um, like very very early Friday morning and I think my cousins and everyone came on that evening so we actually had the whole day we kind of were doing the admin and stuff mostly like going to get it registered and things and starting to plan um, our equivalent of like a meet and greet wake thing that we tend to do um, Mm -hmm. my community and and stuff like that so cousins came that evening Um, yeah I I think in in even those next couple of weeks um, like with the funeral and everything I remember just thinking, like, at some point I'm going to have a breakdown. Because <laughs> um, I think even during the, like I said, like, I was so busy with, like, taking care of my dad and, like, making these decisions or whatever it was that I probably only, like, had a few couple of instances of, like, really crying during the whole time he was in hospital. Um, and I always thought that after he died it would hit me and I would, like, essentially have, have that breakdown that I thought I was going to have. Um and it kind of never happened and it kind of still hasn't happened. <laughs> I keep thinking, is it going to happen next year or the year after or what? But there's always just so much. There's like a next thing to sort out and a next thing to do. And um... Well, you're very busy, aren't you? Because, you, you know, being a lawyer by day and also running SAS um, and with this massive thing that's happened in your life, you, you do have quite a busy lifestyle. So I guess my question is that do you think you've got delayed grief or do you think actually because there is a next thing and a next thing actually that's keeping you together so I think what was really interesting with with my circumstance as well is that um so my I went back to work two weeks after my dad died um and I basically was in the office for three half weeks before we went into lockdown so most of my grief has been in lockdown, um, which I think is a very unique it um, is. way to to um, to grieve because you you can't use any of those like normal mechanisms you have, like people coming to see you or um, going to see your friends or I don't know, like even going drinking if you feel like going drinking one day, like all of these usual mm. things that you might have done. And also, um, I think for me. I really the few days that I did have at work as as difficult as it was I think I think going back to some element of normality Mm -hmm. was good for me yeah Um, but equally um a part of me feels like when we do go back to whatever kind of new normal as we refer to it happens I think I will have delayed grief because um I actually remember the first I was in a new team when I went back to work and um, we had a presentation and they were talking about clients that we work for and they were like oh you know we did this case for GlaxoSmithKline and we did this case for Diageo and that means nothing to anybody else but to me that was like the companies my dad used to work for or I had to do I was doing some pro bono work and um, 
the charity was based in Tanzania that means nothing to anybody else except my to me it's my dad is from Tanzania right Mm -hmm. and it was stuff like that or just where people would ask you what do your parents do or like like they would talk about their dad or their parents all of those small interactions that I think I would have normally had by now being in the workplace or going out or whatever it is um that kind of can trigger you I haven't had those because I've mostly been working from home which has meant that I don't really talk to my colleagues on the same level I think um we're a lot more detached it feels because of that um but there's just a lot of um situations that haven't happened yet and I feel will happen probably in 2021 um I see yeah yeah I see what you're saying yeah because you have been at home and there is that detachment and until those social interactions happen yeah who knows whether those trick when those triggers are going to come or if they will because most people I talk to know right like the, my friends who I stay in touch with know that my dad died so um yeah Hmm. we'll come back to this um a little bit later in the conversation um about those triggers and kind of what the future looks like for you um, or if you think about the future um are you able to talk me through the funeral like are you very religious um are your family very religious or yeah sure so um my family is from a Jane background um so for anyone who doesn't know what Jainism is, I would say it's most similar to Buddhism. Um, it's kind of just all based on on ahimsa and the principle of like non-violence. Tend to be like very strict vegetarians um, and things like that. So my family wasn't very religious. Um, so we're very cultural, but not religious. And I think also a slightly unique thing with um, my community is that although we're Jane, I think having um, probably for like centuries and millennia um, living around Hindus, we've actually incorporated a lot of their practices and festivals and beliefs into our own, even though actually as religions, they're extremely different. Um, And so, yeah, it's an interesting one because when it came to my dad's funeral, my dad wasn't religious, my mum isn't that religious, and me and my brother, I mean, I would say I'm an atheist, and I think my brother's probably, like, agnostic. Um, and so before before this, um, I probably, I mean, my dad died when I was 25, but, I mean, I, there wasn't my first instance with, like, a close death. Um, two of my uncles died... 13 years ago and 10 years ago now um and then my granddad had died a few years before like three four years ago um so I'd actually been to a lot of close funerals um and in a weird way I think it kind of prepared me for what was going to happen or what needed to happen mm-hmm. um but in those circumstances my relatives they actually had like a very very Hindu ceremony for both of my uncles and my um granddad um and so in Hindu um, beliefs they end up they put a lot of um, things in the casket for example like butter coconuts um, laddus um, a lot of different things um, because I in their belief it's that um, I think it takes about 21 days for the soul to be reincarnated and so all of these things that they put in the casket are basically to help the soul get to that next life um, mm-hmm. And whilst actually apparently in, in Jane 
belief, as soon as you die, you're in a new life straight away. There is no period in between. Okay. Um, but yeah, we we didn't personally believe in in either of these. And I remember for some reason when my uncle died, talking to my dad about, um, I don't understand why they put all this stuff in the coffin. And remembering him saying to me that he didn't want anything in his coffin. Um, and I feel like we based it off that. So I really hope I didn't misremember that conversation that I had with my dad. Um, but we basically decided to, um, we didn't put any of the religious things in. We had a, we had a viewing the day before his funeral um, and some of my older kind of like relatives, like my mom and her sister, they sung a few Jane like religious prayers as it is. Um, and then inside the coffin we put um, just things that he would have liked, like we put a golf glove and um oh. his india cricket shirt um lovely what else i think we wanted to put some alcohol but you couldn't put glass in so we didn't do that and then um i wrote him a letter which i put in his coffin um i think we put some jelly or some katya in it um so yeah we ended up doing that instead um it, was it a burial then or no sorry it was a cremation so oh, okay yeah then the next day we we went to the crematorium and and had the cremation so yeah and and I think in terms of like the wider ceremonies and things so we have I as I mentioned before like a big kind of meet and greet so people um tends to be a couple of days after the um death people hire out hall and the main family members kind of stand at the front and um it's an opportunity for everybody in the community to kind of pay their respects. Um, and I think, as I mentioned before, my dad was the treasurer of our community. So he was like a very well-known, well-respected person. Um, I think we had about 800 to 1,000 people come wow. Wow. to pay their respects, okay. um, which was a really crazy thing, I think, at times I really didn't want to do that. I was like, I don't want to stand here. And for me, I don't know a lot of these people, right? So I was like, I don't want to stand there like two days after my dad died and be greeted by all these people I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But in hindsight, and I think especially now, like seeing all the restrictions around like funerals and things. Um, and then so my dad's actual funeral probably had about 300 odd people. Um, I feel really, really, really lucky to have seen that because, like I said at the beginning, like, I thought the, like, I think the world of my dad and he was, like, one of my favourite people. But when all these other people kind of show up, it actually makes you think, like, wow, okay, I'm his daughter and I think he's amazing. But the fact that all of these other people do and all of these other people feel a little bit of your grief um, and a little bit of your loss enough to kind of like turn up and, and for so many people to turn up and to say the things that they did um, and it's like his colleagues and stuff said some really really lovely things and you know we've had memories and things about him that we didn't know um, from them that meant a lot and mm. to me I think that was the best part of like all of the rituals was to just see like how many people he had impacted mm. and I think that's like 
that gave us a lot of um, comfort in knowing that he had left a mark on so many people's lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's really lovely because you've got that support with you on what is a very difficult time, a difficult day, essentially, when you're, this is your goodbye. Did you speak to any of his colleagues? Did you personally speak to any of them? Or was it, you know, I know a day like that can be very, very busy, so maybe you didn't get a chance, but... So we actually, um, when he was unwell, a few of his colleagues came to the hospital and see him. So we told them actually what was happening. And so my dad worked um, for GSK, so GlaxoSmithKline, for 27 years. So a lot of his um, success and career was like in this one place. And so his a couple of his colleagues were actually a bit older than him, um, like his, his former boss, He'd known him for like 40 years um, Mm -hmm. and they travelled together and gone on these trips and all of that. And um, we got to during that time, like when they came to the hospital, like they would tell us, like, I think one of them was talking about the first abroad trip that my dad went on was like in South Korea in the 80s. Then he apparently was amazing at karaoke. (laughs) um, Love it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, or just like, um, but what was another thing? There was um, his boss was saying how um, he had decided that he wanted like my dad to be his like vice president or whatever terms they use in their their career because he would always stand up for what he believed in and like he wanted somebody who would challenge him, um, but equally you know was like a really like humble, lovely person. So. It's it's so interesting because you never know what your parents are like at work, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, like I knew he was successful and that like, he'd travelled and he'd done very well for himself, but you never know what they're actually like in those circumstances. And it's amazing to see, um, uh, like even his recent colleagues from where he was working just before he went into hospital had like such nice things. Like one of them was saying that he used to. Um, print out this specific like opinion article from FT and put it on this guy's desk so that they could discuss it like it was just really really like quite funny yeah it's quite funny um and I think the other thing uh, <laughs> honestly this, this is the one thing that probably used to like always make me tear up was also and um, every single one of his colleagues would say to us like all he did was talk about you and your brother and like oh. how proud he was of you yeah that's always, so lovely it is so lovely but it always like gets you when you realize like you know whenever you, you know you think back and you're like oh I probably was like got irritated at him for small things and outward things like that and you think like actually like with everything he had going on and you know everything he was doing like the fact that um he still apparently was talking about us all the time and and really proud of us it was just um a, a parent's love is unconditional you know and when it comes to dads I you know my dad died early this year and um a father's love is like no other for their kids especially their daughters <laughs> yeah like I yeah that's definitely probably um, I think he would done anything for me and I think it's weird now knowing that like you don't have anyone 
especially when you were a girl like I, I agree my dad would do like anything for you both yeah and um you know in the future if you do have I don't know if you're in a relationship now or are married but um I think that you know no man can ever replace that really because the love a father gives is it is it's once in a lifetime that relationship is just really special and um dads have such an influence on mm. on a daughter's life so yeah and I, and I think it's lovely that he spoke about you and your brother and yeah and I and I hear you sometimes you think oh why did I get mad or snap or that day and but a parent's love is is unconditional no matter what and it's quite normal to have on and off days with parents because that's just a normal relationship, really. Um, when you when you do have rough days with your parents, um, you might not necessarily agree on on certain things all the time, or or something along them lines. But a parent's love is absolutely unconditional. I think if you're lucky enough to have that relationship with with a parent or have parents that are present in your life, yeah. But I just want to give you a moment to uh, just give you a moment, really. No, I'm I'm okay. Gathering <laughs> myself. I think it was just uh yeah, it was the one thing that when when his colleagues would say that to me, it would just like that's the one thing that would always make me cry. And obviously, still talking about that now makes me cry. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's okay. There's you know, yeah, it's okay to that's that kind of just shows how much you loved your dad and how much your dad loved you. And clearly, other people knew it as well. Did you get to deliver a eulogy or anything like that? Is that something that you do? Um, yeah. Or? So we, um, um, at both the kind of meet and greet thing that I mentioned um, at my dad's funeral, my, me and my brother like did both. So we did a speech uh, at both. Um, and again, it's really interesting. Like I remember... Um, sometimes people have somebody else like do the funeral service because they feel like they obviously can't hold it together but so originally um I was I was saying oh my brother should do it so my brother is actually very similar to my dad and like almost feels like a mini dad and at times because he's just extremely stoic like I've never seen him cry in my entire life maybe once or twice and that's that's it um so I was like, yeah, you're going to hold it together better than I am. Like, maybe you should do it. Um, but in the end, we did it. We did the entire service together. So um, we did a speech just like about my dad's life. Um, we wrote a poem um, about him, which was actually just like all the things that we are going to miss, like all the holes that he's going to leave in our life. Um like, you know, his um, chair in the living room or I think it has other stuff like um, every time I used to come down the stairs in a sari, my dad would tear up. Um, or like the various nicknames that we had for, like he had for us. So like he used to um, call me like Munno and Dicklo and stuff and he had a couple of nicknames for my brother as well. So um, yeah, we'd, we made this little poem kind of, saying those things and uh chose like a few specific uh Bollywood songs that my dad used to love um that were relevant um so yeah we we did get to thankfully and um I think everyone held we all held it together as well during the service and 
and I remember turning over actually at one point and all of my cousins were sitting on the um, seats next to us where we were like on the um, speaking and I just looked over and they were all like in tears Um, and all my cousins are mostly boys as well and like I've barely have seen them cry and like I just turned over at one point and they were all like weeping um and I was like okay I can't look at them anymore because otherwise I'm gonna lose it um so yeah we uh we did get to and I, I'm glad we got to do something you realize it's so hard to do justice in such a short space of time and and to say everything that you want to say and but we got to do something and I think as as I mentioned before it was more just like the amount of people who kind of turned out and and stuff that was like the real the real takeaway and like beauty of those days for us and more than anything else. Mm. It sounds like it was a really beautiful day and you know you got up there and you delivered your eulogy with your brother yeah I also um carried his coffin was one of the people to carry his coffin which um I mean traditionally it's only boys yeah yeah Yeah. that um and I specifically was like I want to do it like I was his daughter (laughs) like I'm not gonna not be one of them um so that was like another wow oh yeah good for you yeah slightly helps I think that I'm like a decent height so it wasn't lopsided um and practically worked as well but um yeah I'm really I'm glad I did that too and how did that was that conversation easy that you wanted to take part in that way and um because it is traditionally men it's quite Mm. patriarchal was it an easy conversation for you to have yeah so um the funeral director, who is actually someone who's who's um, from my community and, and quite well known and knew my dad actually quite well as well, um, he is pretty forward thinking. So he himself, like I'd already decided, um, but before we even got to it, he was like, if you want to do it, you can do it. Like there's no, um, there's nothing saying that you can't. So, mm. um, and in my like family, I don't think anyone had like anything to say that I shouldn't do it um so yeah I'm I'm glad that I did and I think even with um with cremations like you go a few people go behind to actually witness the coffin setting a light um and I think that's another thing like generally probably more only men do that um but it was me and my brother um my dad's siblings um and my mum's brother who um was her kind of who passed away a month ago now um and yeah it was all and actually my mum came as well she never um because as I said like generally women don't do these things of like witnessing that bit um she'd never actually gone behind at any of the funerals like her her oldest brother who who died like 13 years ago she didn't do that all for her mum or her dad so but she decided she wanted to come with us to see that last point of um yeah my dad's coffin setting a light so I think it's really important to question some of these things and just do what you feel is is right um absolutely to participate in it and 
I think with everything, right? Like even with what we did in terms of not doing some of the religious stuff, I'm sure other people think we may have done it wrong and that there's certain things that we didn't do right and and all of that. But um, I don't know, you have to ultimately feel that peace that you did everything you wanted to do and to help you kind of process and and give that person the send-off you want to give them. So I would 100% recommend challenging those things especially if they're a bit sexist and patriarchal because especially if it's like you're the daughter right you're one of the most important people absolutely couldn't agree with you more we've talked about it on and off on the podcast previously in series one and now in series two and yeah I think we need to have more open conversations and start challenging things a little bit more because you know participating from beginning to end is really important being able to say goodbye or to be able to say something um it's it's I mean particularly for me I have always felt like I've not been able to participate in certain things um and it's not an easy conversation to always have and I just think in this day and age we kind of need to move on from what is very patriarchal is the way that I would see it. I'm being very nice and polite at the moment. <laughs> um, I would much rather swear about it. But, um, I just think some things are very, very patriarchal and we're really afraid to question it. And yeah. we use excuses of why certain things are done a certain way. And, you know, I think mental health first <laughs> is, is, is really important because stuff like that can really impact your mental health if you're not able to participate, especially when you are a daughter and that is your dad. Yeah, definitely. Mm, but you know, I'm I'm so happy to hear that you did, you know, get to do that and that's that's amazing and that you got to be part of that from beginning to end. Which which now kind of brings me to ask you about what support has been like for you this year in terms of uh counselling and bereavement support. Any any challenges? What worked? what didn't work yeah so I mean as I mentioned before like my grieving period has essentially been the length of this pandemic um and I think it's just worth noting like that has made it challenging um and also I think with being the first of my friends to lose a parent um Mm. I have some incredible incredible friends um who have you know, I, I feel really, really lucky to have had and, and um, are very much there for me and have shown that in that time. Um, equally, none of them get it. Um, and that has been, I think one thing I've realised as well, especially with um, people you're close with, um, and particularly for me with my friends, because none of them have experienced it firsthand, um, is actually that you have to communicate it and and what you're going through I mean like I've gone through those periods where I feel like I don't want to be that person who's constantly talking about my dead dad right like the person who's always bringing up my dad died and I'm feeling this um but the reality is that especially with people you're close with they do care but they probably just especially when you haven't been through it, you don't actually get that it's like constantly on your mind and that you're constantly thinking about it and you're constantly feeling it. Um, And so there's just been times where I've had to like check myself and say, 
they can't read your mind. They also maybe don't know what it's like. So to put my pride aside and actually say, hey, guys, I'm feeling a bit of shit today. Sorry. Am I allowed to swear? I'm really sorry. I just said. Um, you, are, you are allowed to swear. It's a, it's a um, not. Sorry. Um, yeah, and, and say, like, I need some support. Um, so that's one thing I would just say is has been quite good is just putting your pride aside and, and sometimes asking for help and asking for support. Um, mm. And also what you can communicate and what that support is. Mm. Yeah. I think being specific, yeah, is really helpful for those that have never gone through that. Because uh, essentially, I think people do want the specifics. They just don't know how to mm. express, oh, this, you know, how can we help you? They they want to do something. So if you tell them to go do your shopping, they will probably go and do it. Um, that's probably what they want to hear. They want the specifics. But at the same time, I feel like there needs to be a level of, like, grief awareness and education yeah for for those that haven't gone through it because you're not always going to be in the mood to explain what it is that you need and sometimes that isn't pride it's it's quite vulnerable space to be in to say that I am feeling really you know I'm having a very griefy day today or Mm -hmm. you know I'm really hurting right now or whatever it may be or that you just need extra help that can be hard to articulate sometimes it's not always pride and I feel that you know in society we just need to normalize talking about grief more and educating people on it 100% I think it's especially the I mean like we feel so uncomfortable talking about death like and I think actually both in British culture like we don't really talk about it um and then even in like South Asian culture like I found generally the thing is like you just have to be strong you just have to hold yourself together and so people don't actually really talk about what they're feeling and that they're really struggling it's just like get on with it um yeah I hate that yeah and so that was another thing is is also just like people not acknowledging it like I found it like I know for example that my supervisor when I went back to work um HR had told him and I think he said to me once like you know I'm I'm really sorry to hear what happened it sounds really really difficult like um you know if you need anything let me know and then we never spoke about it again and I also don't know if anyone in the rest of that team knew that I had just come back after this period out and and that my dad had died um and obviously we ended up working from home so it's slightly different but I remember feeling quite weird of like I don't want to be the one to bring it up but equally it kind of would be nice if somebody did just ask and then you feel like I could then if I wanted to talk about it um and one of my other friends recently said to me that she has wanted to ask me sometimes how I'm doing, but she doesn't want to trigger me. And I think what my response to that is, is like, I'm thinking about this all the time. Like whether you ask me how I am or how I'm doing or not, um, it's in my head. So the likelihood that you're going to trigger me um, and make me realise my dad died, which I which I know when I have that, I still have that realisation every day when I wake up. Yeah, you're not going to forget, are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I get where you're coming from, but like, um, it's always in my head. Like, it's not, you asking me is not going to remind me I already know that right um 
And so I, I think it's something really powerful to actually, and you don't even have to ask like, oh yeah, how are you feeling about your dad? Just just say like, you know, how you do Or just even saying, I've been thinking of you. Like one of my really good friends used to just send me a message once in a while saying, I was thinking about you today, I'm just checking in. And it's a really nice way of doing it because if I wanted to open up about something, it gave me the opportunity to. Whilst if you don't say anything because you're scared about, upsetting the person you're not giving them any opening to potentially talk about it if they wanted to um so yeah yeah absolutely it's 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 quite closed statements and questions actually of support um and we need to have more open questions and more open statements when we're trying to offer support so it could be like well what was your dad like or Mm. what what did you do with your dad were there any special places that you went with your dad would you want me to come with you um you know where you scattered did you where did you scatter the ashes was that here in the UK or so we've actually not um had the chance to do it yet okay Um, and the plan is to maybe split them which actually is against if you're religious you're not meant to do that but I think we will um but we definitely know that some if not all of it will be in Tanzania in the lovely yeah the the town where my dad is from he was so he loved Tanzania I I don't think he actually always said that when he moved to the UK he thought he was just going to come study and move back um and so he grew up on the town it's at the foothills of Mount Kilimanjaro and uh he was obsessed with Mount Kilimanjaro as well um and he got to climate with my brother when he was 60 actually which is amazing Lovely. Um, so yeah the plan is to go back to Tanzania when we can and to spread some if not all of his ashes there um and at the moment he's his ashes are actually in our house which is another thing and technically I think in religious practice that's bad luck to bring um the ashes of somebody into your house but I mean I don't believe that if they live there with you as a person, why can't their remains be with you? Um, yeah. So yeah, we're just we're just waiting until pandemic passes and we can we can do that final stage. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of stuff that's out of your control by the sounds of it here. Obviously, pandemic being one of them. So there's only so much you can do, which kind of um, brings me back again to the levels of support. There are lots of different ways we can give support and types of questions we can ask and and one of them could be like you're not upsetting someone by asking them what are your plans for scattering the ashes or you know when are you going to go back to Tanzania or you know it could be anything really but I I hear what you're saying and I've experienced that myself that I think people think they'll be hurting you more by bringing it up or reminding you that, hey, it's not like we're going to forget that our dads have died. So, Yeah, and it is, like you said, like it's so nice when people give you that space to talk about the good times as well and like to just share memories about them. And, um, yeah, and you, you don't feel have to feel self-conscious about bringing them up. And, and the work setting is a difficult one. I'm, I'm sorry to hear about that, about your supervisor. I think with that, with work, you will have to go back to work at some point in the future um, when the offices reopen. And, you know, people will be like, well, what have you been up to? What's been going on? And actually, 
you don't want to be the one to I get that you don't want to be the one to deliver that news and you don't know if your supervisor has or not it might be a question to ask your supervisor but I get that that's a difficult question to ask especially if they've ended it with um if you need anything let me know which I hate that line (laughs) absolutely cannot stand that line please stop saying that um because that's closed and yeah yeah sorry for your loss is my pet peeve I've actually like if when people have delivered news about other deaths to me I've actually like try really hard not to say that I don't know why I just found I found it a really throwaway comment that I got messages saying like so sorry for your loss or like yeah exactly I was just like I hate this I just actually hate this (laughs) and Um, you might quite like the post. I actually posted sorry for your loss on bereavement room Instagram and loads of people commented on why they hate it and why it's their pet peeve. Yeah. So feel free to scroll through and have a look at what people <laughs> had to say about it. It was quite funny. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, I just I think there's a lot. And I think, you know, I think this podcast is amazing for that very reason of just like opening up conversations about death and grief and everything that comes along with it I mean you know ultimately it's the only certainty we have in life is that each of us will die and everybody that we love will die so why are we so scared about talking about it um because it is the only um thing that that we all have certainty around and then yeah like I mentioned to you like my um, uncle passed away a month ago and that was uh complete shock very very sudden um and obviously for my family to have to go through that again like two very key people both passing away this year it's, it's been actually really interesting even with my cousin so um my cousins who I'm quite close with um there's four families and actually all four of our dads have passed away so we all have between the ages of 13 and 35 all lost our dads so quite rare in that all nine of us know what it's like um and all at fairly young ages um but it's been really interesting actually particularly with my two cousins this time who lost their dad like just how much we've all spoken about it um Mm -hmm. because of that and it were all different circumstances and we all had different relationships with our dads right so all of our grieving and um reflections are going to be different but it's been nice to have a space that we can all talk about it with because there's some weird shared experience there as well. And you're very close to your cousins, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, we we are. And like I said, they were um, all there a lot of, like, all the time when my dad was ill. Um, And I I think one of them said that their colleague just didn't understand why he needed to go to the hospital so often for like his uncle they just were like what like seems a bit much kind of thing um and I can that's just like one of the best things I think about like South Asian culture right is that when things hit the fan everybody is there and everybody like comes to help out um, I and I with the food with the support like just being there having someone to talk to like really 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 got us through what was such a like difficult and um emotionally and physically draining time so Mm. yeah yeah that's definitely one of my favorite 
things about South Asian culture, the togetherness and showing up, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which kind of brings me to ask a little bit about cancelling, if you're happy to share. Um, did you get any cancelling at all? So I didn't get specific um, bereavement counselling, but um, I've had a therapist for about a year now. So um, I actually was going to finish my therapy last November and then that's when everything started happening with my dad. So kind of extended it and um, it's been occasional, hasn't been um, as regular. Um, It's more been once a month, once every couple of weeks, something like that. Um, I had a couple of sessions actually, maybe one or two during the time that my dad was in hospital. Um, And I don't know, I I think there's a real, real power in just like having a space that's just for you and just for you to share however you feel that day um, and all the emotions that, um, especially in that time where you have so many conflicted emotions um, in your brain and so many thoughts and things that you're trying to clear through, um, that just having an hour completely for yourself to get those emotions out and say whatever you want to say, I find it really helpful personally probably as somebody who who needs to talk through things in order to process them um I don't think there's anything per se that like they can um say to like make anything better or anything like that but just having that space that is judgment free just for you um and nobody is there trying to like because I think another thing when you know you talk to certain people about it is do the like let's have the positive perspective or like think about all the good things like I think it's just nice to have like a space where you can just be Mm. um, without being fixed or rescued yes yeah I've I've definitely um had a, a few conversations actually with a specific friend where not even just about grief related stuff but just general like um if I was menting about stuff there was always like her immediate need was to like be like oh but like you know this is you can see the positive in this and I was like I'm not an inherently negative person and I I will see the positives like at some point but I actually just need some space to feel shit and that's okay and it's okay for you to not have a solution and just to let me like be right and and acknowledge it yeah yeah um so yeah I think that's what I've gained from it um and I think other things that have helped also in general is just like podcasts listening to other people's experiences which is which has definitely helped absolutely and it it sounds like you you know what helps you and what doesn't and I hear that toxic positivity that sometimes can come that's what I like to describe it as toxic positivity that comes from some friends that just want you to see the positives in everything but actually you do need that space to feel all the feelings that you're feeling, all the emotions that you have in order to process them and and move forward or un- understand what it is that you're feeling in that moment in time. So with cancelling, sorry to keep going back to this, was it private or did you get it through a charity? It was private through um, like work health insurance, which I'm very, very lucky to have. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so like AXA healthcare um which you just have like employee healthcare yeah program so I think it's like a small premium each year and then 
you can um, quite easily actually get um, therapy through that. I think also our um, the, the law firm that I work for, they do just generally have like a free counselling line that you can call. Um, okay. Generally, so we're very lucky to like have those um, like supportive kind of services available for free. Yeah, absolutely. Which kind of brings me to ask you a little bit about UK Compassionate Leave. Um, I have exhausted it on the podcast, as you probably know. I've I've had many conversations about it. Um, But since posting about Compassionate Leave on the Instagram account, so I was inundated by so many people in my inbox. Mostly, I counted, were were Mm ex-lawyers or people that work in law firms that anonymously disclosed what they went through and they said that it was particularly not helpful that they didn't get any bereavement leave or any compassion or they ended up leaving their job or you know a manager or a supervisor xyz treated them in this way I was really quite shocked with what was disclosed and I just wondered what your perspective is on that yeah um so as I said I I can't like my I mean I would say my manager within my firm who who dealt with it um who was like the head of graduate development because I was still on my like training scheme at the time um was incredible like I couldn't have asked for anything more like he basically from the day I was like I'm going to the hospital and then he just after that was like take as much time off as you need which for me in the end ended up being three months um and then when I was talking about coming back he you know he said if you want to defer like your last um rotation um and defer your like qualification you I'm happy for you to do that and give you some time off or actually and this is what I decided to do in the end was like to come back on like a staggered basis so to like start with three days a week and then moved up to four and then um eventually back to full time so I was extraordinarily lucky, I think, not only to get three months off, but also to be paid during that period, um, which I didn't really care about. But like, it was obviously nice to have had that support. And and from what I've, I've not actually spoken to other lawyers about this, but I've spoken to, to like my family, such as my cousins and my aunts and things. And um, yeah, you do hear, like, I'm shocked at how... Uh, like uncompassionate people can be or and I really it from what this from the sounds of it anyway when I talk to people is it actually really it's not even sometimes your company's policy it actually just turns out to be your manager Mm. and how empathetic they are and how probably an element of how much power they have also but um they can they can do a lot more and get you that time off if if they want to um and so in my circumstance I was able to and you know I do wonder whether if if it had been anybody else whether I would have got that time off you know Um, and I think my mum was saying all those years ago she after her mum passed away she went in after two weeks and um her man just sent her home straight away I was like you don't need to be here and I think she ended up taking a month off whilst um some of my cousins actually who a couple work in the civil service and they were saying they got three days and that was it so yeah, I personally have had the 
the best situation and the best support of, and also just being left to it during that time like not being asked when you're coming back what are you doing and even my colleagues like I dropped work in the middle of it and when I was like I sent them an email maybe a week later they're like oh I, I don't think I'm gonna be in for a while they were like you don't need to say anything I like, don't worry like we can get somebody else to cover it like you just don't need to worry about any of this and I don't know if that's also a perk of like maybe slightly working for a bigger organization like I think sometimes when you work for a smaller place if you're so integral that if you're not there the workforce is struggling um which I think for example my um cousin's wife had recently um there can be a lot more pressure yeah I I think I looked at the um legal position actually before the podcast and I was surprised at how like they're meant to have some policy for some time off which is unpaid but it's actually not it clearly can differ very much across different companies so Mm. yeah Mm. well well, thanks for sharing it's just good to know what people's perspective is on it and um yeah I I guess it is really shocking because there's lots of people that have really poor experiences when it when it comes to compassionate leave and uh, I I hope that things will start to change with Jack's law now in place I hope that things will start to improve and that companies will put in better policies and that managers will get some kind of education around how to manage bereavements in, in the workplace because I do agree with you a lot of it is is probably down to the people manager and, and how empathetic they are. So this kind of brings me on to, we are going to be wrapping up very, very soon. What's the one thing that you want people to know about grief? It will change your entire perspective on your entire life. And that doesn't actually have to be a negative thing. Like it doesn't mean that a sad thing or anything, but it will change how you, like how you, you think about everything, right? Like I am... Um, one thing that I feel recently is before especially like you know being in London being a very fast-paced career and everyone's on this like rat race mindset thinking about their five-year plan and their 10-year plan (laughs) and I I now think like if I'm gonna do anything or plan anything like might think about yeah where I want to go in the next year and things I want to do but um if anything it's just reinforcing me like you need to be present and you need in the moment because you don't know what's going to happen to you ever. Um, so, yeah, I think grief gives you a perspective on on living all of those things in a way that you maybe don't expect um, and about a lot of things. Um, it's a bit of a slightly, like, positive thing as well, I would say. It's, like, as much as, for me, like, I remember thinking, like, my worst nightmare was something happening to my parents. So will you'll not only survive it but you will find a way to thrive um too and I think that that is like a nice thing to remind yourself is like in those moments like it can be and you should sit with those really really negative moments and and the sadness and the anger and everything that comes with it but yeah you you will find a a way to thrive again that's really lovely Sharon thank you so much for sharing and um I'm curious to just know, do you ever think about the future? I know you and I have discussed offline that life is different for you now and maybe you have more caring responsibilities, I don't know, um, with your mum, for example, perhaps. Is there anything that you think about when it comes to the future and your family now? Yeah, definitely. And I, I actually really think that's 
probably my biggest battle right now is um, not only not only my dad dying, but obviously being in the midst of a global pandemic where you don't know what is happening and what's going on and what you can and can't do. Yeah, the future is me trying to figure out how to balance me, like what's best for me, my mental health, what I want to do with my life. Like I'm in my 20s, right? Like, um, and, and sometimes I feel this very, very heavy burden that I will never know what it is like to be a carefree person in my 20s ever again because I do have responsibilities um, and I have had to take on things and I have I do have to think about my mum and um, being there for her more and um, all of the other things that have have come because essentially you know the entire support structure that I had has been like cut to the ground and we have to create a new new version yeah the future is unclear at the moment and it's an ongoing struggle I think for me to balance what I need for myself and what I want to do for myself and and like I was saying to live my life in a way that I won't regret if I were to die tomorrow but at the same time the collective responsibility of like um my family and and my mom and everything else that comes with that so yeah I'm figuring it out (laughs) yeah it's a journey I've really enjoyed speaking with you today thank you so much for sharing your experience so how can our listeners reach you on social media yeah so you can find me on instagram and twitter at shirin fulner so it's um yeah on both channels there and then you can also um find sass which I mentioned earlier at we are underscore sass on both uh twitter and instagram lovely Thank you very much. So we are now going to move on to the gratefulness challenge. I'm going to go first, if that's okay. I'll give you a moment to kind of think about it. So the so the gratefulness challenge, just a reminder, is how we end our conversation. Um, one thing we're grateful for in the here and now. So I think for me, you know, I've had a really, really busy week. There's a lot to think about when it comes to BR, a lot of blood, sweat and tears goes into making bereavement room um I have started a fundraiser you can find it in my link tree just want to say that I'm so grateful to every single person that has contributed I know some some of those people that have contributed are friends former guests and also people that I don't know which are likely to be the listeners uh, a massive thank you I am grateful and just grateful to everyone that listens and is present with us so yeah that, that's me I'm gonna pass the mic over to you thanks um I think I think something I've been feeling very very grateful for recently is just nature and how um incredibly that's just the incredible gift that we have um and that nature is particularly for mental health so I've started every morning going for a walk in in my local park um with a podcast on and that's just a new way to start my day and I've just found that standing in the middle of a green field um just taking in like the fresh air and like especially all the beautiful colors with autumn at the moment um I don't know there's there's nothing more calming and nothing more like grounding than that um and so yeah I'm feeling really grateful for nature and and also finding a way to be more engaged with nature probably because of the circumstances of um of the pandemic 
Well, that was Shirin Shah. She joined me in the room to talk about her father who died earlier this year and what a year 2020 has been. Let's wish Shirin well for the future. If you are listening to Bereavement Room for the first time today, it does make a huge difference if you leave a star rating and review. And you can find us on social media. The handle is at Bereavement Room. As always, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care of yourself.